Good morning. Welcome to River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. And, and uh, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us this morning. Uh, man, if there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here, we would love to do that. We'd love to get to know you. And so come find me or John or somebody else who looks like they're friendly around here. Uh, we'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged in here. So... Uh, excited to continue our new series. We were uh, just beginning a series walking through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you've been gone or if you're just visiting us for the first time this morning, let me catch you up on where we are at so far. So 1 Corinthians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. And uh, the letter is written right around 55 AD. And so that's about five years after Paul would have come to Corinth and helped plant and start this church. And so He's writing to this church that he knows, that he has a relationship, that he's helped to begin. And so Corinth, the city itself, was, was this incredibly important port city. It was kind of strategically located in such a way that it kind of controlled east-west trade between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so huge amounts of goods and, and power and influence then flowed through the ports in the city of Corinth. But we talked about as well how important wasn't, Corinth wasn't just an important and wealthy city, it was a new city. Rome had conquered and destroyed and basically leveled the city of Corinth about 200 years prior to the writing of this letter. And they left it de destroyed for about 100 years before deciding to rebuild and resettle the city. And, and basically when they did that, they, they sent people to the city uh, that they were mostly resettled it with people who were freed slaves and army veterans. And so you have a, a city that is full of people who are kind of making a new life for themselves, making a new name for themselves. And so it's full of this aspirational and upwardly mobily minded people. And in that context we've seen the last couple of weeks is really important because that, that that upwardly mobile and aspirational um, mindset, that was at the very core of the Corinthian culture. You see, everything in Corinth revolved around kind of climbing the social and economic ladder and, and being seen by others as honorable and praiseworthy and powerful and influential. And one commentator sums it up this way. He says, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. Corinth is a place you went to make a name for yourself, to make an identity for yourself, and to be seen as praiseworthy and powerful and influential. That's, that's the thing that mattered most. And so this consuming fixation on those things, it, was, it permeated Corinthian culture from the top to the bottom. And tragically, what you see as you read the letter of 1 Corinthians is that, is, is that this church was no exception to that. What's, what's painfully clear when you read is that their highest priority it's just the same as the culture around them. The thing that matters most to them is their own glory and their own social advancement rather than God's glory and his, the, the advancing of his gospel. And as you can imagine, that was causing all kinds of problems in this young church. In fact, as we study the letter, what you're going to see is that almost all of the issues that Paul has to address in this dysfunctional church, they really stem from this one root cause is that instead of being formed by the, the truths of the gospel, is that they're being ongoingly formed by the, the, the ways of the world and the wisdom of the world and the culture around them. As we've seen the past few weeks, the, the first area this underlying problem begins to manifest itself is with the divisiveness and tribalism in this church. You see, people are forming factions around the various leaders in the church and, and uh, fighting amongst one another. And these divisions, they weren't based on theological differences. They weren't just some kind of popularity contest. Instead, 
what we've seen is that the divisions that are happening in this church are, the, are, are, at, the, are at the root of that, are, is that this church has just imported their culture's system of patronage onto the, into the life of the church. You see, in Corinth, again, the thing that mattered most is climbing the social ladder. And one of the ways that you do that is by attaching yourself to somebody who you saw as kind of higher up the ladder than you. And so, and so you would uh, kind of find somebody a little bit higher up the ladder and you'd attach themselves. You kind of become part of their fan club. And as their fan club grew, they became seen as more praiseworthy and influential. And because you're associated with them, then so would you. And so the Corinthian believers have just kind of imported this cultural mindset into the life of the church, and they're looking to their leaders as patrons who can help them climb the social ladder and and get the identity and the status that they're looking for. And we saw at the end of chapter one how, how the Apostle Paul, he confronts this problem not only by pointing out the futility of this thinking... But he, but he points out how it's totally out of step with the very message of the gospel. Paul says he came proclaiming not himself as some patron who could get, gain some followers for himself and climb the ladder. He didn't claim Jesus as a patron who could help them climb the social ladder themselves. Instead, he says he comes proclaiming Jesus as a savior who comes to set them free from this endless striving to climb the ladders in their own culture so that instead of striving for that, that identity to make an identity for themselves, they'd be, they'd be free to rest in the identity that Jesus gives them as his chosen and beloved and, and commissioned and sent people. But what we keep seeing is that in, despite the reality of this identity that, that they have in Christ the, as God's people, these Corinthian believers are still trying to manufacture an identity for themselves. They're, they're trying to manufacture an identity and a status by attaching themselves to their leaders in the church, leaders like Paul and Apollos. And what we keep seeing is that while they may believe the message of the gospel, their lives and their community were not being ongoingly formed by it. Instead, they're being formed by the culture, that the, the ethos and the mindset of the surrounding culture. You see, they weren't living in light of God's wisdom and being led by his spirit. What we see happening is that they're living in light of the wisdom of the world and being led by the spirit of the age. They're looking to human leaders to give them what only God can give them. And so in our passage this morning, and, and again next week as we take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, the next two weeks here, what we're going to see is that, that Paul's doing is he's reframing their perspective on leadership altogether. And he's calling them, in, in light of doing that, he's calling them to reject the deceitful wisdom of the world and to embrace this foolish wisdom of the cross and, and to become a community that actually ends up growing up into maturity instead of just staying as spiritual infants and so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. God, thanks so much for our gathering this morning. Thanks for bringing us together. God, as we come together this morning, we just, we just want to acknowledge our need for you. God, so often uh, we try to learn or grow. We try to become your people on our own effort and in our own strength. And we just want to remind ourselves this morning that, that it doesn't work. And so, God, we ask that you, by your spirit, would meet us in our study of your word, that you'd empower us to be able to hear and respond rightly to your word, and so that we might be a people who follows your wisdom and your ways instead of the wisdom and the ways of the world. 
And so we need you to do that. We need you to correct our thinking and our acting. And uh, God, we need you to be the one that does that in us. And so we just come humbly this morning asking, God, that for our good and for your great glory that you would cause those things to happen. So we need you, God. Thanks that you love to meet us in our need for you, we pray. Amen. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter together, starting in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes, he said, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not, are you not, mere, are, are you not mere human beings? For what, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to us each his task. For I planted the seed, and Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And so neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they'll each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. And by the grace that was given me, I laid a foundation as a wide builder, a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, and it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward." And if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as only one escaping through the flames. For don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. For if any of you think you're wise by the standards of the age, you should become fools so that you might become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting in human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. See, what's going on here is that the, the Corinthian believers, they, they think that they're really wise. They think they're really spiritual. They think they're really mature. But Paul says that the truth is that they're not. In fact, they, they haven't grown up at all. He says they're still spiritual babies. And the reason he knows that that's the case is because they're still worldly. They're still thinking and acting just like everyone else in the city of Corinth. Last week we saw in chapter 2 how, how true maturity is marked by having a heart and a mind that has been transformed by the Spirit of God. And so that you begin to see the wisdom of the world for the foolishness it really is. 
and you begin to see the foolish message of the gospel for the wisdom that it really is. And so in response, what happens is you start to think like God does and you start to live as he does and reflect him instead, because instead of being formed and led by the wisdom of the world, you're increasingly becoming formed and led by the wisdom of God and his spirit. You start to become characterized by what Paul refers to in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the spirit. Right, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and the list goes on. You see, but in the first few verses, what we see Paul saying to this young church is that that's not what's happening for them. He says, I couldn't address you as people who live by the Spirit. He says, I couldn't address you as mature people because you're not. You're still worldly, he says, for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you just acting like mere humans? See, Paul's saying that the, their fighting and divisiveness that's so full in this church is that it's this clear and compelling evidence that, that they're not mature, that they're still babies. And I just want to point out two, two side notes here before we keep moving on. The first is this. Paul's emphasis here on the, the rebuke that he's giving this church, his emphasis is not that they're spiritually immature. It's that, that they're still spiritually immature, you see, it's not wrong to be a baby Christian. It's not wrong to be spiritually immature. Everyone who becomes a Christian, that you start there, right? The problem, he says, is with staying that way, right? Many of you guys have babies, right? All they're really doing is sleeping and eating and pooping, right? Like they're not mowing the lawn. They're not cleaning the dishes. They're not helping out in any meaningful way, right? In the beginning, they're not even smiling at you. You're like, what? Why do we even have you around, right? In the beginning, that's fine, Right? Because you don't expect that from them. You're like, okay, cool. You know, you might, that's even kind of cute, right? But if your 20-year-old is still needing you to change their diapers and clean up after them and feed them, that's not cute anymore. That's disgusting, right? You see, the reality is that immaturity, whether physical or spiritual, is not meant to be a permanent status. It's not meant to be something that stays that way forever, it's a phase that you should grow out of. And so some of you are here this morning and, and you've just become Christians and you're just figuring out what it means to follow Jesus and you're young in your faith and in a lot of ways you are still immature. And Paul's words this morning are not meant to be like a rebuke against you. But I want to encourage you this morning that you, that you might hear them as a warning, right? It's okay to not be mature in your faith for a while, but you can't stay there. God calls us all towards maturity and all towards growth. And so we should be pursuing that intentionally and deliberately. That's side note number one. Number two, side note. A lot of times when we think about what it means to become mature and to grow up spiritually, a lot of times we think that that's tied up with knowledge, right? The, the, the more doctrine you know, the more theological principles you have an opinion about, the more Bible verses you have memorized, the more dead pastors that you can quote, and the more mature you are, right? But instead, what you see in Scripture over and over and over and over again is that maturity is not tied with what you know. That maturity is tied with what you do. You see, maturity is evidenced by a lives that increasingly reflect the character of God, not the character of the world. And so you can know all there is to know about doctrine and theology and all that stuff, but if your life does not increasingly reflect the character of Jesus, then you are not mature despite however much you know and however much you can quote. You see, and if you're, not, if you're concerned more about growing in knowledge than you are about growing in holiness and Christ-likeness, 
then you might think you're mature, but I have a feeling God might probably disagree with you on that lens. You see, what we want to be, what matters most is the people whose lives increasingly reflect the character of Jesus. That's what it means to be mature and to grow in maturity. And don't hear me, I'm not trying to diminish knowledge, I'm not trying to minimize theology, I'm not trying to make it seem like it doesn't matter to think rightly and importantly and to grow in our understanding of those things, but that's not what maturity is. So let's not confuse those two things. See, the Corinthians, they thought they were mature, they thought they really knew a lot about things, but the reality is, Paul says, they weren't. They weren't becoming more godly. In fact, he says they're still worldly. That word worldly, literally, it means fleshly. It's a word Paul uses as well in Galatians chapter 5, and it's a word that stands in direct contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. It's the thing that is on the other side of the spectrum. Right? And Paul associates that word in Galatians 5 with things like hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and dissension and factions, and the list goes on, right? And you, you read that list, and you're looking at this church in Corinth, and you're like, jealousy, check. Factions, check. Selfish ambition, double check. Oh, no. Like, this is not going well, right? Like, it's all the things that are opposed to godliness that this church is characterized by. You see, they're not acting more like God. They're, acting, they're still acting just like the world around them. And their view of leadership is being trans, it's not being transformed by God's wisdom and his ways. Their view of leadership is just being conformed to the view of leadership that the world around them has. And you'd think that Paul would just kind of tell them to stop it, right? Like, stop being stupid, right? Stop, stop looking at your leaders as patrons that can help you climb the ladder. Stop fighting. Stop with the jealousy. Just stop. And he eventually gets there, but it's so important, you see, he doesn't start there. You see, instead, what he goes on to do next is give them an, a different view of leadership altogether. He lays out for them this gospel-formed view of what it means to, to view your leaders. And in contrast to the Corinthian-formed view of leadership, which views leaders as just influential patrons who can help you climb the social ladder and achieve an identity for yourself, you see, Paul's gospel-formed view of leadership, it describes leaders as wise servants who keep pointing you back to the identity and status you already have in Jesus and who keep calling you and encouraging you to build your life and your community on that foundation. You see, Paul's description of leadership that we see here in this, in this week and next, what we're going to see is that it is so wildly countercultural, not just in Corinth, but in our own day and age as well. You see, in Corinth, the goal is always to get to the top of the social ladder. That's where the positions of power and influence and praise and notoriety, that's where all those positions were, right? And yet, what you see here is that Paul is saying that the people these Corinthian believers are looking to to help them climb the ladder, they're going the other direction on the ladder, Right, Verse 5, he says, what after all is Apollos? What's Paul? He says, only servants. He goes on in verse 9, we are co-workers in God's service. You see, leaders, Paul says, they aren't influential patrons. They are humble servants who, especially in the case of this church, who, who are being used as dividing lines are really actually on the same team. See, they're not, they're not fighting each other to gain some kind of following. They're fighting so that people might follow Jesus. And they want people to give their lives to him. And they want to matter less and they want Jesus to matter more. 
See, Paul takes their status as leaders down another step in verse 6 when he says, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, right? In Corinth, all the wealth and the power, it flowed through the ports in Corinth, not the fields. Corinthians, they, they saw manual labor as the most menial of tasks. And yet here Paul is describing Apollos and himself not merely as servants, but as gardeners. Right? Gardeners who are, who are just doing what God has assigned them to do. And he's, yet, he's not done going down the letter. Verse 7, he ends where he says, So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Do you see, Paul, in each word, he's taking a step down the Corinthian ladder of praise and honor. And what he's doing here is a reflection of the mind and the actions of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 20, the disciples are fighting amongst one another because they're all trying to clamor for this, these positions of power in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus, he calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that the high officials exercise authority over them. Verse 26, he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must become your slave. You see, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, what we see Paul doing over and over throughout this letter is in to the midst of a church that is obsessed with climbing the ladder, Paul just keeps walking himself down it. And he's doing that because he already has the identity and the status that they're all clamoring after. And he's resting in the identity and the status that Jesus gives him and who he has been called to be by Jesus. And so he is free to be seen as foolish and he is free to be seen as weak in, the, in their eyes because he knows what is true is that he is seen as truly wise in the eyes of God. See, but don't miss this. See, what, while Paul is going down the ladder of honor and praise in the Corinthians' eyes, God is going up the ladder. You see, verse 5, he says, What after all is Apollos? What's Paul? Only servants, he says, through whom you came to believe. As God assigned this task, right? See, the power that brought them to faith did not and does not reside in them. They are merely conduits for God's power to flow through them. The power that had any of the transforming work in their lives, that's God's power, not their own, he says. Verse 6, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. He says, but God has been making it grow. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants or waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. Paul, he says, Paul and Apollos, they aren't saviors. They aren't the source of power. They are merely tools in God's hands. What you see is that there's life in Paul's words there. Paul's words aren't, they aren't full of a sense of demeaning. They're full of a sense of honor. Because to be a tool in the hand of the king of the universe, is, there's no more honorable a place to be. You see, this is what godly leaders do. They make God impressive and not themselves. And their goal is not to be seen as great, but to ensure that God himself is seen as great. And their goal is not to get credit for themselves, but to give God credit for all that he is doing. And I hope so desperately that that is what you see in your leaders here at River City. 
Aaron and I, the rest of your leaders, your small group leaders, we are not important. God is important. And whatever work you see God doing in your life through us is not our effort. It's not our power that's doing it. It's not our genius that's doing it. It is God by his spirit and grace using us to minister to you and to make much of himself through you. It's not about us. See, I don't ever want you to be impressed with me. I know Aaron does not ever want you to be impressed with him. In fact, if you are ever walk away from time with us and you think you're really impressed with us, then I have done my job wrong. See, because my goal is not to make much of me, but it's to make much of Jesus. That you might see him as beautiful and captivating. That you might be impressed by all that he has done for you. See, the greatest compliment you could ever give a preacher is, is not that there was some great sermon, but that because of God's word being preached, you came to love Jesus more. And you saw him as, more, as a greater treasure than you have previously. That you're captivated by him and that you love him with all your heart all the more. That's what I long for. That's what I pray for. That's what I want to be true of the leaders here at River City. See, leaders, godly leaders, are those who point others to God, not themselves. And in the Corinthian worldview, that's absolutely upside down. See, because in the Corinthian worldview, the whole point of being a leader is to become more influential and praiseworthy yourself. And Paul says, and that's not how it is. You see, leaders in God's kingdom, the whole point of being a leader is that you are a servant who points others not to yourself, but to Jesus. And the countercultural upside-down thing is that that's where there's really life and purpose. See, but leaders, Paul goes on to say, aren't just humble servants. They are also wise builders who, by God's grace, help others to found and build their lives and faith on the person and the work of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 10 through 15. He says, verse 10, by the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building it on it. But he says, each of you should build with care. See, as a wise builder, Paul helped to found their faith on the person and the work of Jesus. And so they've got the right foundation and the, they believe that they're saved by Jesus. Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time emphasizing that. In other letters to other churches, he keeps hammering that home because they've forgotten it. And that's not the case here in Corinth. They, they understand that they're saved by Jesus. They're, not, they're just not being ongoingly formed by that truth. They've got the foundation right, but they're not growing up into it. They're not building their lives and their faith with materials that will last. So as a wise builder, Paul's warning them about the consequences of doing that. Some of you are contractors, you're builders around here, right? Paul's warning them about inspection day, right? It matters, it's important. Verse 12, he writes, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what's been built survives then the builder will receive a reward and if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though as only as one escaping through the flames. See, Paul warns this church that there is a day coming when the work of their lives will be tested and shown for what it is. 
And that day is the day of judgment. When you read, right, the day is capital. It's not just any old day. It's the day, right? And the Bible talks a lot about judgment day. But I think what often we miss is that there will be two judgments on that day. We see the scripture teaches that there will be a judgment regarding our salvation and there will be a judgment regarding our rewards, You see, Paul's not warning this church about that first judgment. He knows that this church, he knows they have trusted Jesus as their Savior. We saw in chapter 1, he he affirms that there's these evidences of that happening in their lives, right? And so he's not not worried about, he just realizes they're immature and stagnant believers. And so he's warning them about this second thing, right? He's warning them that building their lives based on a desire for earthly rewards and things that will not last, Instead, he's trying to get them to think with an eternal perspective and to live in light of the eternal things that matters and to think about eternal rewards. You see, each person will be rewarded according to their work. And Paul's not, again, I need to be clear, Paul's not talking here about salvation. He's not talking here about right standing with God. Instead, when you become a Christian, you're faithful with your life, you get rewarded. And if you're unfaithful, there are different rewards. Here's the deal. Paul is saying that there will be a day when God will come to judge. And God's judgment will, the fire of God's judgment will reveal the works of our lives, the stuff we built our faith on, the stuff we spent our lives building. It will reveal it for what it really is. And it will either be proven to be built with gold and silver and costly stones, or it will be proven to be built with wood and hay and straw. You see, what happens is when you build something, when, when fire, when, when gold and silver and costly stones, when they go through fire, what happens is they're purified. And they're proven to be more valuable and more precious and more significant. But when wood and hay and straw meet fire, they just turn into nothing. They just get burned up. And Paul's writing to this church here, this church who has believed the gospel but is, but is not being formed by it, is not spending their lives living for the truths of the gospel and building their faith around those truths. He's writing, he says that there will be some on that day who are, who are not going to lose their salvation. They're not going to go to hell. They still will be saved, but they won't have anything to show for their lives on the other side of the fire of God's judgment. They may have trusted Jesus to save them, and he did. But they weren't faithful to him. See, Paul's warning these believers that living for earthly rewards and the praise of people, it won't last. So you don't want to be the guy who's standing before Jesus at the end, who Jesus says, I love you, and you're welcomed into my kingdom, but the stuff you gave your life to was worthless. The stuff you spent your energy and your time and your money and your resources on, the things you built your life and your faith on, they they don't matter. They were a waste. Instead, Paul calls the church to build their faith and their lives with precious materials on the truth of the gospel and on the person and the work of Jesus to live with Christ's mindset as they think about their lives and their world. So that when they stand before Jesus, not only will they be saved by his grace, but there will be rewards for a life built on him and given to him. See, what you do in this life matters for eternity. It matters. The king of the universe has said that it matters. So often we are so content to just live for the rewards of praise that, that, that end here. 
And Jesus, Paul reminds us that Jesus says there is a rewards that are waiting that will last forever. So live for that and pursue that, not just things that will, things that will, fade, that will fade. See, and the trouble is, is that, that we're prone to disregard that foundation. And we're prone to build with shoddy materials. Prone to live our lives for the rewards that will fade rather than the rewards that will last forever. So the question is, how do we avoid that? How do we not only have the right foundation, but build on that foundation with things that will matter? And finally, at the end of the passage, we see how we see the way out of immaturity and the way out of worldliness, the way into growth in godliness is by continually coming back to the truth about who you are and whose you are. See, ultimately, what's going on in Corinth is that everyone is looking for an identity and a status that will fulfill and satisfy, something that will give them meaning and purpose and give them a sense of worth And Paul claims that that being God's building is the thing that gives us the identity and status we're looking for. He says in verse 16, don't you know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God dwells in you? He's saying that when the church joins together on the foundation of Christ, it is the very container in which God chooses to dwell on earth and make himself known. There is no greater an identity. There is more noble a status to be the very dwelling place of the king of the universe. So Paul says, stop boasting. Stop boasting about your leaders and about your own prowess. Stop resting in your own knowledge and your own skills. Stop stop trusting yourself. Instead, boast in Christ alone because it's through him that he's the way you have that identity in the first place. You couldn't earn it for yourself and you certainly didn't deserve it, but you have it through him. He writes verse 22, he says, all things are yours already. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. D.A. Carson explains Paul's starting logic behind this simple statement this way. He writes, if we truly belong to Christ, and if Christ belongs to God, then we belong to God. Therefore, everything that belongs to our fathers, as, our, as us as children, belongs to us. Paul's writing to this church, and he says, you are giving your lives to climbing a ladder, trying to get an identity and a status that doesn't even matter when you've already been given the identity and status you're looking for. You have all you could ever need or want in Jesus. Everything. You have the identity and status you are so desperately searching after. And I know I keep coming back to this identity stuff every week. I keep hammering home this idea about our identity in Christ and our identity as God's holy people, not because of who we are, but in spite of ourselves and because of Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you're just tired of me hammering on that and you wish I would just move on to something else, but I'm sorry to break it to you, I won't be doing that. Because one, that's not what the passage does, and so I'm preaching God's word to you, but two, because the reality is is that, that if we would believe and rest in the identity that Jesus has secured for us, then we would live different lives. The way you become transformed by the word of God is when you see who you already are in him. 
And you live into that identity. You see, what you believe, it always changes what you do. And who you believe you are, it always changes how you live. See, these Corinthians are so desperate to get an identity that they think will matter. And so they view their leaders as patrons and they're fighting amongst one another. Right? Because what they believe is changing what they do. Paul says, if you would believe and rest in who Jesus says you already are, that's what would change you. That's what would transform your life. That's what would cause you to be new people. The identity we have as God's people, as his temple, as the place where the creator and king of the universe dwells, if that's who we would believe we are, it would change us. I pray for you to that end all the time that God might graciously, by his spirit, cause that truth to sink deeply into your hearts. I remember talking with my friend John a few weeks ago and we were just beginning this series and I remember over lunch he just said to me, he's just like, I feel like, I feel like if, I, if the truth about my identity in Christ would just sink into my heart, then things would really start to change. And he's right. He's right because what you believe about who you are, it always changes what you do. And so that's my prayer for you. That like Paul prays and urges these Corinthians to rest in their identity in Jesus as his people, his temple, his holy commission, beloved, valued people. That that truth would sink deeply into your heart by the Spirit's power so that you would live in light of that identity that you would live as God's people, his holy people in the world. And see, and it's the message of the gospel, it's the message of Christ crucified. That's what secures that identity for us. And it's that message that we keep coming back to every week when we celebrate communion. So with the bread and the drink, we're remembering Jesus' body and blood, which was broken and shed for us. And we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and all that it accomplishes for us. Reminders that we're given us a status and a standing by the king of the universe as, as his beloved and commissioned and sent people with the most honorable and noble task of all to make him known. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him or others. Instead, it's an opportunity for you to remember Jesus and to remember the identity and the status that his life and death secured for you. So that in remembering him and who he has made you to be, that you might be free, that you might be free to rest in that identity be free to be seen as foolish and seen as weak, yet known as wise by God himself. So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus to give you an identity and to secure it for you, then whenever you're ready, I'd encourage you to take communion. If you miss the communion packs on the way in, there's a table in the back on the left and in the right. You can grab one during our time of worship. But if you're, if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus and who he is and, and what it means to receive an identity from him, then I want you to know you are welcome here in this church, but I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion. 
See, communion is about remembering the identity we have been given because of the person and the work of Jesus. It's not about getting an identity or achieving something. It's not about being changing our status with God. It's about remembering him. So I'd encourage you, receive the identity he has for you before you receive communion. That's what you need. That's what you are longing for. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your word this morning and we're so thankful that you might keep it for us. God, we're so tempted always when we read your word to think that it's speaking to someone else, but God, we ask by your grace that you would cause it to sink deeply into our own hearts. God, help us to see the the ways that we are viewing leaders that need to be shifted and changed and aligned with the view of the gospel has for them. And God, help us to see the, the, the things that we are living our lives for and building our lives on that aren't you, that won't last. God, help me to be a wise leader. God, who serves humbly and who shepherds our people. God's towards you and towards a towards the lives in a community that is built on you and things that will last. God, we can't do any of that without you. We are utterly dependent on you. You are the master builder. You are the gardener. You are the one who makes and causes all things to grow. And so we ask humbly, Jesus, would you cause us to grow up into maturity in you, to to believe deeply the truth about who you say we are in Jesus so that we might live a life of maturity unto you, a life of worship unto you, a life formed and led by your spirit instead of the spirit of the age. God, we need you. Help that to be true in us. Amen.